This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On October 21, 1967, more than 100,000 Vietnam War protesters marched on Washington, D.C., up to that point in the war, over 15,000 American and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese lives had been lost, and even more on each side were wounded. Many citizens were tired of what seemed to be an increasingly pointless conflict and wanted to see the 500,000 soldiers stationed in Vietnam brought home. Despite the growing opposition to the war, President Lyndon B. Johnson was determined to keep up the fight no matter the cost. But anti-war advocates were just as determined to make their opposition heard. 1968 was an election year, and while Johnson faced challengers in the primary elections, it was all but assured that he would receive the Democratic Party's nomination. With the Democratic National Convention slated to take place in Chicago during the last week of August, various political action groups drew up plans to hold massive demonstrations and protests during the event. But Chicago's mayor, Richard J. Daley, was a pillar of the Democratic establishment and one of President Johnson's biggest allies. If protesters tried to disrupt this auspicious event in his city, he wasn't going to make it easy for them. He wasn't afraid to take extreme measures to stop them. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Welcome to the first of two episodes on the 1969 trial of a group of protesters colloquially referred to as the Chicago Eight. This week, we'll delve into the charged political atmosphere that led to the protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention, detail the ensuing clashes between police and the protesters, and investigate how the Chicago Eight were identified as those responsible for the violence. Next week, we'll go into the trial itself 
and see if the Chicago 8's actions made them guilty of the crimes of which they were accused. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event, July 22nd through August 9th. All your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. No decade in recent American history had more social and political upheaval than the 1960s. The civil rights movement and the Vietnam War particularly inflamed people's passions, leading to unprecedented protests that shifted the nature of American society. Angry over President Lyndon B. Johnson's refusal to change his policies on the Vietnam War, a political action group known as the Resistance met at the University of Chicago in November 1967. 26-year-old Rennie Davis announced that he would lead protests against the Vietnam War and the Johnson administration at large during the Democratic National Convention. He said he wanted the world to know that there were thousands of young people who didn't want to see a rigged convention rubber stamp another four years of Lyndon Johnson's war. Davis was also the National Director of Community Organizing Programs for the Students for a Democratic Society. He was dedicated to holding nonviolent protests that would make the Democratic establishment take him seriously. But Davis wasn't the only one planning on holding protests at the 1968 convention, and not everyone was as by the book as he was. In December of 1967, political activists Abby Hoffman, 31, and Jerry Rubin, 30, discussed organizing protests of their own. Both men were products of the free speech movement in Berkeley, California, and shared a zany, nonconformist outlook on life. Earlier in 1967, Hoffman, Rubin, and poet Allen Ginsberg had organized an exorcism of the Pentagon. In another political stunt, they threw hundreds of dollar bills onto the floor of the New York Stock Exchange from a balcony. News cameras captured wealthy stockbrokers scrambling to grab as many dollars as they could, effectively exposing the greed Hoffman and Rubin believed permeated American society. To recruit enough people to join their convention protest, Hoffman and Rubin realized they needed to create an organization like Rennie Davis's Students for a Democratic Society. But unlike Davis, they didn't care about getting the political establishment to take them seriously. They just wanted to make a statement. Ever the jokesters, they formed a group called the Yippies. Although they claimed it stood for the Youth International Party, 
Allegedly, the name came from the men shouting yippee at the idea of protesting the Democratic National Convention. As with Hoffman and Rubin's previous stunts, their protest at the convention was going to be fun and lighthearted. Because they thought of the Democrats as the party of death, they planned to host a festival of life. In a pamphlet the Yippies released in January 1968, they called for people to join them for an international festival of youth, music, and theater. The life of the American spirit is being torn asunder by the forces of violence, decay, and the napalm cancer fiend. We demand the politics of ecstasy. We are the delicate spores of the new fierceness that will change America. We will create our own reality. We are free America, and we will not accept the false theater of the death convention. We will be in Chicago. Begin preparations now. Chicago is yours. Do it. At the same time, Rennie Davis was in the process of planning a more serious protest. As the national coordinator for the newly minted National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam, commonly referred to as MOB, Davis organized a planning meeting for January 24, 1968. Along with fellow MOB leaders David Dellinger, 53, and Tom Hayden, 28, the group of about 40 people agreed they should flood Chicago with as many anti-war protesters as possible during the week of the convention. Knowing that several other groups planned to protest the convention, MOBE sponsored another strategy meeting on March 23, 1968. Over 200 people, including Rennie Davis, David Dellinger, Tom Hayden, Abby Hoffman, and Jerry Rubin attended. At the meeting, Davis and Hayden handed out a 21-page document outlining MOBE's proposed protest strategy. Although MOBE and the Yippies differed in their overall plans, they both agreed that nonviolence was the key. In the days after the meeting, MOBE and the Yippies officially applied for permits with the Chicago Parks Department to hold demonstrations and sleep in some of the city's parks. If everything went according to plan, the organizers hoped to bring over 500,000 people to Chicago to protest the Democratic National Convention. Only four days after the protest groups applied for their permits, there was a shocking development in U.S. politics that turned the protesters' plans on their heads. On Sunday, March 31, 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson suspended all bombing in Vietnam. Furthermore, he was withdrawing from the presidential election. I have concluded that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Previously, Johnson's only primary challenger was U.S. Senator Eugene McCarthy who was staunchly anti-war. With Johnson's departure from the race, two notable figures filled the vacuum, Vice President Hubert Humphrey and U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy. 
As Johnson's VP, Humphrey became the new favorite to win the nomination, and, if elected, it was expected he would carry on Johnson's Vietnam policies. But Kennedy and McCarthy were powerful opponents. If either man won the nomination, there would be little reason to hold mass protests at the convention. However, the twists and turns in the American political landscape were just beginning. Less than a week after LBJ's withdrawal, on April 4, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. King's death sparked protests in over 100 cities, with some growing into full-scale riots that included looting and arson. Even though 5,000 U.S. Army soldiers were flown to Chicago to help suppress the violence, the city's 65-year-old mayor, Richard Daley, believed it wasn't enough. In his opinion, even though nine black citizens were killed in the riots, Chicago's police commissioner was overcautious in his handling of protesters. If it had been up to Daley, he would have instructed the police to, quote, shoot to kill any arsonist and to shoot to maim or cripple anyone looting. Although King's death led to the expedited passage of the 1968 Civil Rights Act on April 11th, the bill also included a provision known as the Anti-Riot Act. This law made it a felony to travel across state lines with the intent to incite, promote, encourage, participate in, and carry on a riot. Moab and the Yippies were planning nonviolent protests, but if their demonstrations got out of hand, this new law could land their organizers in significant legal trouble. While the developments in late March and early April of 1968 certainly dampened some people's enthusiasm to protest the Democratic National Convention, Moab and the Yippies were still moving forward with their plans. Even if LBJ was no longer in the race, his policies would still be in effect until the next president took over. And depending on who won the general election, the Vietnam War could continue into the foreseeable future. It was critical that whoever won the nomination understood the extent of the opposition to any continued conflict. As Moab and the Yippies waited on the status of their park permit applications, they concocted increasingly absurd plans for what they'd do during the convention. After Humphrey and Kennedy entered the presidential race, the Yippies presented their own candidate, a pig named Pegasus the Immortal. While the Yippies viewed what they were doing as a lighthearted way to publicize their disillusionment with American society, the issues they were protesting against were all too real. In June 1968, yet another influential political figure met an untimely end. Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated just hours after winning the California primary. With the Democratic primary race suddenly down one of its most popular candidates, Vice President Hubert Humphrey re-emerged as the favorite to win the nomination. Although Eugene McCarthy vowed to fight until the bitter end, it was clear he wouldn't have the delegates to overcome Humphrey. Johnson's VP's victory in the general election meant that the status quo would continue for another four years. 
All of a sudden, there was a renewed urgency to hold protests during the convention. But Mayor Daley wasn't going to let Moab and the Yippies ruin what he viewed as one of his administration's crowning achievements. The convention was his opportunity to show off Chicago to the most powerful figures in the Democratic Party, and he wasn't going to let a bunch of long-haired hippies muck it up. As the convention approached, Daly had the event hall reinforced with a barbed wire fence and called in 6,000 Illinois National Guardsmen and 7,500 U.S. Army troops to help maintain law and order. Making matters worse for the protesters, on August 5, 1968, Moab and the Yippies learned almost every one of their permit applications to demonstrate and sleep in the city's parks was denied. The only one that was approved was to hold a protest at Grant Park on August 28th, six miles from where the convention would be held. Mayor Daley hoped the permit denials would be enough to deter Moab, the Yippies, and other groups planning to come to protest the convention. It wasn't. With local Chicago organizers Lee Weiner, 28, and John Freund's, 29, helping to wrangle logistics, the protests would move forward as planned. Around the time their permits were denied, the Yippies sent out pamphlets urging Festival of Life attendees to bring sleeping bags, extra food, blankets, bottles of fireflies, cold cream, love beads, electric toothbrushes, see-through blouses, manifestos, magazines, and tenacity. In typical counterculture fashion, planned activities included poetry readings, mass meditation, political speeches, along with more outlandish events like fly-casting exhibitions and a dawn ass-washing ceremony. But amongst the lightheartedness, the pamphlet also advised people to bring handkerchiefs and canteens to deal with pepper spray. Clearly, Hoffman and Rubin, along with Moab leaders Davis, Dellinger, and Hayden, were expecting clashes with law enforcement. They had no idea what they were in for. Coming up, the 1968 Democratic Convention is consumed by violence. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And now, back to the story. In the lead-up to the Democratic National Convention in August of 1968, several political action groups planned protests to voice their disapproval of President Lyndon B. Johnson's handling of the Vietnam War. One of the two most prominent organizers was the serious-minded Moab, led by 27-year-old Rennie Davis, 53-year-old David Dellinger, and 28-year-old Thomas Hayden. 
The other was the absurdist-leaning Yippies, led by 31-year-old Abby Hoffman and 30-year-old Jerry Rubin. However, a wrench was thrown into their plans when Chicago's mayor, Richard Daley, denied all but one of the protesters' permits to hold demonstrations. But Moeb and the Yippies refused to back down and headed to Chicago anyway. The protesters arrived in earnest on Friday, August 23, 1968, three days before the convention was slated to begin. Although the numbers were far below the hundreds of thousands of people Moeb and the Yippies hoped to attract, a sizable group of nearly 10,000 arrived at Chicago's Lincoln Park, ready to make their voices heard. It seemed like their decision to ignore Mayor Daley's strong-arm tactics had worked. Although there were signs on the trees announcing an 11 p.m. curfew, the actual police presence was minimal. But the protest leaders knew it might be only a matter of time until the mayor ordered the police to take action against them. In addition to the festive activities like music, dancing, and yoga, there were also self-defense classes in case of an eventual clash with the police. It wasn't much, but it was all they could do. The next morning, Saturday, August 24th, Hoffman, Rubin, Davis, Dellinger, and Hayden gathered to discuss whether or not they should obey the posted curfew. Opinions were split, with Yippie Hoffman calling to ignore the curfew and Moeb Rubin advocating for following it. Lacking a defined leadership structure, they couldn't come to a decision, but Mayor Daley could. Around 10.30 p.m., about a half hour before the curfew was set to kick in, the police arrived at Lincoln Park. When a few protesters pointed out that the curfew wasn't until 11, the police responded by launching tear gas canisters. This incident was the first major test for the protesters, who faced a difficult decision, fight back against the police's aggression, or maintain their pledge of nonviolence. The protesters responded peacefully. Led by poet Allen Ginsberg, they calmly exited the park, dispersing into the city for the night. But they returned to Lincoln Park the next morning, Sunday, August 25th, for the planned Festival of Life. Although the music part of the festival was a bust, only the band MC5 came to play, it didn't dampen the protesters' spirits. While the Yippies enjoyed the day's events, Rennie Davis, Tom Hayden, and other MOBE leaders organized a march to the Hilton Hotel, where most of the convention's politicians were staying. But as afternoon bled into the evening, Mayor Daley's police mobilized. Around 9 p.m., they forcibly dispersed the MOBE demonstration across from the Hilton and followed them back to Lincoln Park to enforce the 11 p.m. curfew. Around 10.30 p.m., a brigade of police officers arrived at the park. Walking through the grounds, they announced with bullhorns that anyone breaking the curfew would be arrested. They were true to their word. At 11 on the dot, police charged into the park, launching more tear gas and violently subduing protesters with their billy clubs. Even after the remaining protesters fled the park, the police followed them into the streets. 
A few protesters responded by throwing rocks and other objects at the officers, but the police only responded with even more force. As the clashes carried on into the early hours of Monday, August 26th, Mobe's Tom Hayden was arrested for allegedly letting the air out of a squad car's tires. Incensed at the police's actions from the night before, Hayden's Mobe colleague, Rennie Davis, helped organize a thousand-person march to the Chicago police headquarters on Monday afternoon. While protesters marched through the streets of his city, Mayor Daley formally commenced the 1968 Democratic National Convention. In his opening remarks, Daley vowed, as long as I am mayor of this city, there's going to be law and order in Chicago. He was true to his word. After marching to the police headquarters, the Moab demonstration turned to Grant Park. Protesters swarmed a hill and climbed all over the massive General John Logan Monument. But their permit to be in Grant Park didn't take effect until August 28th. So the police immediately cleared the protesters with force. At the same time, the Yippies, led by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, built rudimentary barricades back in Lincoln Park to try and stop police incursions. But their paltry defenses, made of trash cans and wooden beams, were woefully inadequate. When the 11 p.m. curfew arrived that night, a police car slammed into the barricade, demolishing it. Police officers quickly swarmed into the park. Some protesters responded by throwing rocks and other objects, but it did nothing to temper the raid. As the police followed the protesters into the city streets, the violence became even more indiscriminate than the night before. Some city residents, who were simply watching the events unfold, were dragged from their front porches and beaten by marauding police officers eager to punish anyone suspected of being a protester. As Mayor Daley had feared, the city was spiraling into chaos. But it wasn't because of the protesters. It was because of the police officers who were supposed to protect and serve the citizens of Chicago. The next morning, Tuesday, August 27th, the protesters returned to Lincoln Park and attempted to restore a sense of peace and harmony. At 6 a.m., poet Allen Ginsberg led about 200 people in a dawn meditation ceremony. But many of the protesters were getting fed up with the nightly beatings at the hands of police. Throughout the day, Black Panther Party chairman Bobby Seale gathered about 2,000 people. He had come to the protest at Moab's request. But unlike Moab and the Yippies' ideals of nonviolence, Seale and the Black Panthers had no qualms fighting fire with fire. Around 7 p.m., Seal made a speech urging those who gathered to, quote, get your shotguns, get your 357 magnums, and get your 45s and everything else you can get. If the pigs treat us unjustly tonight, we'll have to barbecue some pork. Although Seal's words contrasted with Moab and the Yippies' more peaceful message, his speech re-energized the protesters. Later that evening, Many of them gathered in the Chicago Coliseum for what was dubbed an unbirthday party for President Johnson. Performers and speakers included Abby Hoffman and Allen Ginsberg, 
as well as MOBE leaders Rennie Davis and David Dellinger. After the event's conclusion, the crowd marched to Grant Park. With television cameras rolling and politicians watching from their windows in the Hilton Hotel across the street, the police refrained from forcibly dispatching the group for the moment. Back in Lincoln Park, away from the concentrated media presence, the clock struck 11, and the police resumed their nightly ritual of tear gassing and billy club beatings. Many of the 2,000 people still gathered there fled to the safety of the Grant Park demonstration, which continued late into the night. But at 3 a.m., the protesters in Grant Park were confronted with a new foe, the Illinois Army National Guard, who had come to relieve the police officers on duty. In place of tear gas and batons, the guardsmen marched into place with M1 machine guns, fixed bayonets, and barbed wire-covered jeeps. But the National Guard didn't answer to Mayor Daley. They answered to Brigadier General Richard T. Dunn. And he was much more willing to open a discourse with the protesters. General Dunn grabbed a bullhorn and tried to offer proposals to get the protesters to disperse. However, the chanting drowned out Dunn's attempts to communicate Eventually, he realized that the protesters weren't going to leave unless they were forced to. But they were demonstrating peacefully. He didn't see any reason to resort to violence. He allowed them to stay in Grant Park for the rest of the night. To celebrate this victory, Yippie Abby Hoffman and a few friends went out for breakfast around 6 a.m. on the morning of Wednesday, August 28th. As they sat and ate, two policemen entered the restaurant. According to the officers, they had orders to arrest Hoffman because he had something under his hat. Before complying with any of their requests, Hoffman demanded to see a warrant. A few minutes later, more police arrived, surrounding the restaurant with several squad cars. Realizing the police weren't messing around, Hoffman lifted his hat. He had written the F-word on his forehead as a way to deter cameramen from filming him, knowing they couldn't show an expletive on TV. Claiming he was under arrest for obscenity, the police threw Hoffman onto the ground. Then they dragged him out of the restaurant, pushed him against a squad car, and handcuffed him. Although Hoffman was only detained for a few hours, his arrest set the tone for the rest of the day's protests. The spirit of cooperation that had been fomented with the National Guard the night before disappeared. August 28th was the only day the protesters had an official permit to occupy Grant Park. It was also the day the Democratic nominee would be officially chosen. While the candidates vied to be named the party's official nominee, 10 to 15,000 protesters gathered at the Grant Park bandshell. The air was rife with tension. Over 600 police officers surrounded the rally. National Guardsmen were posted on a nearby rooftop with sniper rifles. As the rally's speakers took the stage, the audience kept one ear on their portable radios, relaying developments from the Democratic Convention. The day's agenda included two momentous events. First, the delegates were voting on whether or not to adopt a peace plank, 
If the plank was passed, it would mean that the Democratic Party platform would officially adopt an anti-war stance. Second, the delegates would vote on who would become the party's official nominee. Although Vice President Hubert Humphrey was in poll position, the anti-war candidate Eugene McCarthy had an outside chance of winning. Around 3 p.m. that afternoon, the news came in. The peace plank was rejected. At the rally in Grant Park, cries of dismay transformed into shouts of anger. For years, hundreds of thousands of people had voiced their disapproval of the Vietnam War, and the Democratic Party ignored them. As the news spread through the crowd, Mobe's David Dellinger called for the flag to be lowered to half-mast to symbolize the anti-war movement's setback. A teenage boy made his way to the flagpole, but before he could complete his task, the police waded through the crowd and beat him senseless. In response, protesters threw whatever they could get their hands on at the police, rocks, bottles, even feces. In the ensuing chaos, a group of large men was able to lower the flag and raise a red, blood-stained shirt in its place. In attempt to stop the violence, Rennie Davis instructed the Moab parade marshals to link arms and form a line between police and the protesters. But while trying to get the line organized, Davis found himself caught between the marshals and the police. Before he could get back to his own side, a group of officers grabbed Davis and beat him unconscious. Amidst the chaos, news broke that Hubert Humphrey had won the Democratic nomination. Moab's David Dellinger tried to restore order by organizing a non-violent march to the International Amphitheater, where the convention was being held. However, the police refused to allow the group of 6,000 peacefully organized people to advance. They didn't have the proper permit. With nothing left to unite them, the protesters broke into smaller groups and roamed the streets. By nightfall, many of the protesters found themselves back in front of the Hilton Hotel, where the convention delegates were staying. For no obvious reason, the police brutally dispersed the crowd, showing no mercy as they beat the protesters into submission. News cameras captured the 17-minute sequence broadcasting the savage beatings to the whole world. Although there had been coverage of the protests up to that point, nothing they'd captured came close to this level of ferocity. Mayor Daley had gotten what he'd wished for. The world's eyes were firmly on Chicago, but instead of bringing his city a great triumph, all he had done was bring it shame. Coming up, the authorities identify who they believe is to blame for the violence during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. And now, back to the story. The Democratic National Convention ended on August 29, 1968, but the violence that had taken place throughout the preceding week remained firmly in the public eye. In total, 668 people were arrested. Hospitals reported that 111 demonstrators were treated for injuries, although an on-the-street team from the Medical Committee for Human Rights 
estimated that their medics treated over 1,000 demonstrators. On the other side, the Chicago PD reported 192 of their officers were injured, with 49 of them requiring hospital treatment. What had happened during the convention couldn't be swept under the rug. The National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence, which was charged with analyzing urban riots, appointed a special task force to investigate the week's events. But regardless of what the report's conclusion was, Chicago's mayor, Richard Daley, had his own idea of who was responsible for ruining his administration's crowning achievement, and he was determined to make them pay. Headed by attorney Daniel Walker, the Chicago study team reviewed over 20,000 pages of statements from 3,437 eyewitnesses and participants, 180 hours of film, and more than 12,000 photographs. On December 1, 1968, three months after the riots had ended, Daniel Walker released his report, officially titled Rights in Conflict, but referred to as the Walker Report. He concluded that the violence stemmed from what he called a police riot. The officers were provoked by obscene epithets, rocks, sticks, bathroom tiles, and even human feces hurled at police by demonstrators. However, even if the police were provoked, Walker described the nature of their response as unrestrained and indiscriminate police violence, made all the more shocking by the fact that it was often inflicted upon persons who had broken no law, disobeyed no order, and made no threat. These included peaceful demonstrators, onlookers, and a large number of residents who were simply passing through or happened to live in the areas where confrontations were occurring. The report also stressed that the protest organizers hadn't planned for the demonstrations to become violent, and despite the presence of some revolutionaries, the vast majority of the demonstrators were intent on expressing, by peaceful means, their dissent either from the society generally or from the administration's policies in Vietnam. Walker acknowledged that the demonstrators weren't completely blameless, but on the part of the police, there was enough wild club swinging, enough cries of hatred, enough gratuitous beating to make the conclusion inescapable that individual policemen, and lots of them, committed violent acts far in excess of the requisite force for crowd dispersal or arrest. One of the Walker Report's most critical readers was U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. He believed the best course of action was to prosecute police officers for their acts of brutality, rather than pursue the protest organizers for inciting riots. But by the time the Walker Report was released, Richard Nixon had defeated Hubert Humphrey in the 1968 presidential election. The Johnson administration, which Clark was a part of, had less than two months remaining in office, not enough time to begin any legal proceedings. In addition, Nixon's incoming administration was much more sympathetic to Mayor Daley's desire to prosecute the protesters under the Anti-Riot Act, rather than members of the Chicago PD who were simply doing their job. 
With the tacit approval of the Nixon administration, Mayor Daley convinced his close friend and federal judge, William Campbell, to summon a grand jury. On March 20, 1969, the grand jury indicted eight protesters of violating the Anti-Riot Act, Yippie organizers Abby Hoffman, 32, and Jerry Rubin, 30, MOBE leaders Rennie Davis, 27, David Dellinger, 53, and Thomas Hayden, 29, Black Panther Party chairman Bobby Seale, 32, and local Chicago political organizers Lee Weiner, 29, and John Freund's, 30, who had helped MOBE and the Yippies plan the protests. As a group of eight, Hoffman, Rubin, Davis, Dellinger, Hayden, Seal, Weiner, and Freund's were charged with conspiring to cross state lines with the intent to incite, organize, promote, encourage, participate in, and carry out a riot. If found guilty, each charge carried a penalty of five years in prison. The defendants, who were quickly labeled the Chicago Eight, needed an attorney. Coming to their aid was controversial civil rights lawyer William Kunstler. In the 1960s, Kunstler made a name for himself defending civil rights activists, particularly the Mississippi Freedom Riders. The Chicago Eight were officially arraigned on April 9, 1969. The trial date was set for September 24th of that year. It would be overseen by 74-year-old Judge Julius Hoffman, who had formerly been law partners with Mayor Daley. Judge Hoffman's assignment to the case made it painfully clear that the deck was stacked against the defendants. But if Consler and his clients were going to go down, they were determined to go down swinging. Thanks again for tuning in to our Not Guilty Summer of 69 special. We'll be back Thursday with the trial of the Chicago Eight as William Kunstler defends his clients in the extremely hostile environment of Judge Hoffman's courtroom. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself, did the members of the Chicago 8 conspire to incite violent riots at the 1968 Democratic Convention, or were they victims of unwarranted police brutality? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Alex Benedon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.